Howdy, y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Folks, if you like Tolkien, you've come to the right watering hole. I'm Chad Bornholt, Chad in Texas, and co-hosting with me today is my friend Chad High, or if you like, also Chad in Texas. Thank you, Chad. Well, y'all are in for a treat today because we have a very interesting topic lined up for you to listen and ponder over as our panel of guests discuss and tackle it right here on the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. And if you want to get on the podcast and be a member of one of our distinguished panels in the near future, our elf friends, as we call them, stay tuned after the discussion and learn how you can be on the podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, well, howdy. Here at the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we bring in guests from all over the world to talk about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. This is a podcast where you can take the lead. Any Tolkien topic is fair game. Chad and I moderate a panel of four to five guests who are enthusiastic about Tolkien and his legendarium and have a topic that they not only want to pose to their fellow panelists, but also to you listeners at home. We are so glad that you are tuning in and joining us today. We think it's going to be a really fun and thoughtful discussion. So kick off your shoes and stay a while, and we'll do our best to keep you entertained, or at least from falling asleep for the next half hour or so. Well, it's the job that's never started as takes longest to finish. Yeah, I think we've talked enough. Now let's go ahead and let our Elendili, that is our elf friends, introduce themselves. Let's begin, y'all. On today's episode of the Tolkien Talk podcast, we have Catherine Olson and Lori McGann. And they're going to tell us a little bit about how they got into Tolkien. I am Catherine Olson. I am a 32-year involved person in the Tolkien world's My dad, when I was eight years old, decided that we needed a bedtime story, and he thought the best way to do that was to introduce us to dragons and dwarves, and most importantly, a ring. And so he started reading us The Hobbit at bedtime. Now, unfortunately, my younger sister got scared of the spiders in Mirkwood, and I had to finish the book on my own because she refused to keep on listening. But I've been a fan ever since then. I I read The Lord of the Rings in eighth grade so that was about 1994 and then of course right before i left to be a missionary for the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints the fellowship of the ring came out and i saw it three times in two weeks managed to see the second one on the very last day it was in theaters in massachusetts and saw the third one the normal way now i am actually the co-host of a podcast called a sacred fellowship in which we are studying the works of J.R.R. tolkien chapter by chapter through a different philosophical theme every week. I have a, my co-host who's been on this podcast before, Lorianne Schwenk, and we get together with my admittedly a little bit more extensive knowledge and her neophyte enthusiasm for things. And we discuss everything that we need to know. And we, as a Chad Bornholt knows very well, try to avoid giving spoilers towards the end. My name is Lori McGann also known as Lori in Washington. And I live in Washington state in the middle of a cedar forest, just Northwest of Seattle. And I've been a Tolkien fan since 1977. I was uh, nine years old when the Rankin Bass cartoon of the Hobbit was coming on TV. And my mom had a set of the books and I'm not sure whether she had me read the book first and then watch the cartoon or watch the cartoon first and then read the book but I know that they were very close in time and when that was finished I read the Lord of the Rings and didn't understand it but knew I loved it and uh, kept reading it and kept reading it and then in the very late 80s or very early 90s I read the Cimmerillion 
And again, I didn't understand a word of it and I loved it. And I kept reading it and kept reading it. And my English teachers in college were telling me, that's trash. Why are you reading that? And I didn't care. I just kept reading it. Um, And I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that there were organizations called the Tolkien Society and called the Mythopoic Society, but I didn't think that they were open to me as a fan. I thought they were just academic institutions that were so far above my head that it was never going to be something that I was going to be able to have access to. Um, Fast forward to 2001, when the films came out, I um, was very cautiously optimistic and uh, watched them in the theaters. And my brother-in-law gave me a copy of the extended version of the Fellowship DVD. So of course, I watched the whole thing from beginning to end and started watching the bonus material. And there was this man called Tom Shippey, and he was speaking about Tolkien as though he knew exactly what he was talking about. And um, he opened up a whole world of scholarship to me that I had never knew existed before. And that started my journey sort of down the road of reading what other people had written about Tolkien. And I, I have not looked back. I would never call myself a Tolkien scholar. I am a fan. I am a diehard fan. Um, I will defend Tolkien to my dying breath. And um, just I, there's there's nothing about Tolkien that I don't absolutely love and enjoy talking about. Um, even the criticisms. Um, it, it's it's all fascinating to me. Um, just recently, I had the privilege of being one of the founding members of a new smile here in the Seattle, Washington area, the Gray Havens smile. And, uh, you know, we, we sit around and we talk about Tolkien and we pull the texts apart and we put the texts back together and we ask what if questions. And it's just it's a wonderful way to spend an evening and to really connect with other people who really grok what I am saying. So um, that's, that's part of why I'm so excited to be here today is to talk with other folks who, you know, may know more about Tolkien than I do, may be even bigger fans of Tolkien than I am, but you know, we all start somewhere. And um, I'm just, I'm excited for, for our topics today. On this episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, Catherine Olson is going to take us through a discussion on Tolkien, a sacred reading. Take it away, Catherine. Thank you, and thank you for having me today. Now, the premise of my podcast that I do with Lorian Schwenk, which is called, again, A Sacred Fellowship, is that we are looking at all of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien through lenses of philosophical or religious viewpoints. And one thing that we often have is a little bit of pushback on the idea that you can come to this kind of reading with religious discussion or you can do it without. And I'm going to give two examples that I would use from outside of Tolkien to explain what I'm going to be discussing. The first one is the children's book, The Polar Express. I am not a person who reads simple or easy or optimistic books. I love horror. I love 
all sorts of sci-fi and fantasy, but the Polar Express brings me to tears every single time on the last page. When it discusses the ability of the boy to hear the bells of Christmas throughout his life, and that even though the rest of his family has lost that ability, he will never lose it. And it speaks to me on a sacred level because of my personal belief that childhood and imagination is a eternal thing that should be preserved. The other text I was going to mention is one that is considered both deeply profane and deeply sacred, namely William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. For a lot of people, it is absolutely a tale of demonic horror and the power of evil, but it is an actual allegory in three parts about what we hold sacred, what we hold profane, and how we reconcile the two to achieve a favorable outcome. Now, both of those books are not necessarily things that you would look at in terms of a philosophical or necessarily a religious perspective, but it is something that you can look at in terms of your own worldview. Now, when we talk about sacred reading, there are a number of practices that we really use, and I'm just going to list them briefly, and then I'll go into a little bit of information, and we will have a discussion on how we can use those. My personal favorite is called Havruta. It's from a Hebrew tradition that where two people would meet over a sacred text, and they would read it and ask each other questions about the text and provide answers as well as seeking answers. And one of my favorite things about this practice is the fact that it comes from the word for friend in Hebrew. And so this is a practice that you can do where you have no real prejudices, you have no expectations, you are sharing this information because you see each other as friends and as colleagues. Next, we have sacred imagination, which is where literally one person reads a passage of text and both people or all people involved try to imagine what they would be experiencing if they were one of the people in this scene, what they would be hearing, what would they would be thinking, what it reminds them of but most importantly, what they would say to the people in this scene in response to what they have just heard and felt. We also have florilegia, which has the practice of finding small moments in a passage that sparkle to us or that stand out to us. And we speak those to each other in the context of what we can learn from putting them together and what they might mean when considered in opposition to each other as well. And then Pardes is a, another tradition that really goes through a, a process of understanding the literal meaning of something, the philosophical meaning of something, what it would speak to us in terms of a philosophical discussion, and then the secret meaning that we draw from it during our own contemplation. So my first question for the panel is, as you listen to these discussions of what the different types of sacred practices are, are there any particular passages that make you think, I would love to do this with this part of the book? So, Catherine, as you were talking about the sacred reading and, and all of the, the imagery that came to my mind, I, I, the, my answer, first of all, to the question that you just asked, which part of Tolkien's writing or which section of which book would I think about I thought a lot about um, his lecture on Beowulf, um, and I thought uh, about the, if you haven't read the, the, the lecture on Beowulf that he gives, the overall premise is that um, scholars have dismantled the Beowulf story, and they're looking at uh, the, they're analyzing the wrong part of Beowulf, 
And I think that what you're talking about with a sacred reading goes right in line with Tolkien's overall message in that Beowulf lecture. Um, so I would pose a question back to everybody is what messages can we, can we take from what Tolkien is saying about the Beowulf lecture and how can we apply that to what Catherine is talking about? Tolkien has a very famous lecture on, on Beowulf that he gave, uh, which you can, uh, you can get in various publications now. And basically Tolkien's premise is that the scholars that have analyzed Beowulf are looking at it incorrectly. They're looking at the, they're, they're overanalyzing the bones of the soup is the, is the uh, analogy that he used when they should be appreciating the soup for what it is. So I will, I have, I think an answer for Catherine that ties into what Chad H was just saying. Um, and first of all, Catherine, I would really like to thank you for bringing this discussion to the fore. I've been thinking about this ever since I listened to Lorien's episodes on this podcast and really wondering how to apply sacred readings to Tolkien. It, it's a fascinating topic. Um, when we're looking at the, the Floralia, particularly those small moments, I think of Sam looking up at the stars when they're on their way to Mount Doom and you know that the hope that he feels and you know immediately afterward he sleeps for the first time in a very long time because he has I don't want to say given up the worry but he has in a sense given himself over to the understanding that this is his doom in the bigger sense of the word doom. This is his fate and this is what he's meant to do. And kind of, you know, bringing that uh, back around into reading it from a sacred reading perspective, it, you know, you, you could take that to be a, a touch point for our own lives, that there are, are those small moments in our lives when we really are making a turn or, you know, your, your whole life at this one moment kind of goes a different direction just based on that one little decision that you've made. And it's comforting. I take great comfort in that. That's one of the things that I, I take away from Tolkien repeatedly when, when reading it. And then to bring that into, I think, what Chad was saying, it's acceptance. You know, accept that, that this moment is happening. And... I don't need to try to pull it apart, try to, to pick a little bit of it, try to take that moment from the Lord of the Rings, for example, from the return of the king, and try to you know relate it to was Tolkien on the battlefield in World War II lying on his back looking up at the stars, and that's where this came from. You know, I, I don't need that kind of bones in soup sort of understanding to enjoy the story where it is um, and, and take those, those moments and carry them forward with me. When I'm reading this, I'm not a typically run by emotion type of person. I'm an analytical thinker and I don't usually delve too deeply into how people are feeling. I'm kind of a human computer by, by all means. And so it's not until I actually started listening to everyone else talk about all this stuff that I started thinking more deeply about things like this and really um, stuff that is not like me, you know, because uh, 
like I said, I, I really don't think about things like that that much. But here recently, when, whenever you say sacred reading, I think, uh, you know, it, to me, it conjures any type of religious thing at all. So especially when y'all started that podcast, I first started listening to it, I, I thought, okay, the main thing that it gets in my head going, just the sacred reading at all, just thinks it, it just makes me think about the things that are going on that are unseen. And, and no matter what religion you are, you could be a real religion in this world that is not practiced, or you could be one of the main two religions in this world, or you could be a religion that's inside this fictional world. And the in, in, in all religions, the God, fictional or otherwise, is very difficult to see. And the non-religion, the non-religious people and the atheists or agnostics, whatever, in the fictional world or real world, they can easily describe away the things that the religious people would argue have to have been happened by the, the God of that world. And so here recently I was uh, listening to, to uh, Corey Olson, the other Olson talk. There was, there was something that I noticed, like, you know, a lot of people say, how come Gildor and Glorion did not, uh, didn't aid and stay with Frodo and Sam when they're obviously in danger? Gildor knows that the Black Riders were there. He knows what they are. He knows how dangerous they are. He does not know about the ring at the time because Frodo still hasn't told him, but but there's a good argument. People, you know, people argue, argue he should have stayed with him. And they say that Gildor didn't even help. But Corey said, I believe Gildor did help. And it never even struck me before. But what it made me think of the Sacred Fellowship uh, podcast when he said this is that Gildor tells Frodo, may Elbereth protect you. And then later on at Weathertop, when the witch king is coming at Frodo to heart stab him. And we know that a heart stab would have almost instantaneously erathified him. That, that word can be used. Um, because Frodo, he muttered the name of Elbereth, lurched forward and stabbed at the witch king. The witch king's stab did not hit home. And later on, Frodo says that if he had known, he, he would have been, if he had known what was going on, he would have been too paralyzed to move. So you can argue that Gildor prayed to Elbereth. He made this, this uh, mention to Elbereth. And then Frodo invoked Elbereth at Weathertop. And even if it's, you can describe it away and say that actually was not, that actually didn't help. You could say that it didn't help. And then the then you can also go the opposite direction. You can, you can be on one side of the CCR or the other. You say, well, he was just doing whatever he could do. Or you can say he actually believed that this would help. Well, regardless of which way it went, it actually did help because the witch king's stabby stab did not go where he meant it to go. And so... That's that's uh, one thing about about 
I think about that way. And then there's another thing that I thought of, and I thought about this before I mentioned, before I thought of that one, but I just put that one first because it happens first. <laughs> but, uh, but the whole thing about Frodo not being able to destroy the ring, and when, if you bring in the religious aspect into this, and you think about the, what had to line up for the ring to still be destroyed when Tolkien said, you cannot destroy it. Tolkien said himself, no one can destroy it. And so those who don't really know the story as well as, as some people do, they, they don't know the whole instrument of providence, which from the Ainu Lindale is the, uh, the acronym that Alan Sisto on the Prancing Pony podcast made so popular, shall prove but mine instruments, Babimi. Um, basically, Gollum is only there to steal the ring because of the pity that Frodo and previously Bilbo had had. Bilbo was not pitying Gollum until Gollum sat down in the entrance and started crying. And it, it is because of the pity that, and, and Eru, who is the God in this world, for anyone listening who doesn't know, Eru knows that. Eru knows that Bilbo spared Gollum's life because he saw that could have been me. And later on, Frodo, he's like, why would you pity him? And then later on, Frodo pities him. And it is only because of the extreme uh, complexity of the fact that Bilbo and Frodo spared someone who really does deserve to die for the things that they have done. But you can argue, is it really completely Gollum's fault or is Gollum a result of the one ring and Smeagol was taken like so many others would have been? So when, when you've got that whole pity thing coming on and then you get there and all along Gandalf knew Frodo could not do this because Frodo couldn't even throw it in his own fireplace. And Gandalf could because he knew it wouldn't hurt it. So then when they get to the end, only because of that pity, is there even the chance for someone there to be able to steal the ring? If Gollum had been killed ahead of time, would have had disaster on our hands because Frodo would have claimed the ring. The Nazgul would have pretended to obey him, gotten him away from the edge, and then taken him to Sauron and then game over. So the whole, the religious thing is very well disguised in the story. And yet when you read Tolkien's private letters, he says it was God. It's, but, but it's disguised on purpose. So the people who are reading it, they have to infer that on their own. And it's really difficult to see that whenever you're just reading it on your own. Those are very good points, Chad. I, I, I you know, you kind of, you kind of, stole my thunder a little bit, but that's okay. That, that's, it's totally fine. I'm used to it. Um, you know, so I, we, we know that the Lord of the Rings is a, and all of Tolkien's writings are fundamentally religious texts. They are, they, they do, they fall within the bounds of his own personal beliefs. The appeal of the Lord of the Rings in particular, and the Silmarillion and the Hobbit to a lesser degree, lies within the 
applicability to the reader. I know that Catherine at the beginning of her uh, discussion talked about, she talked a little bit about allegory versus applicability. Tolkien was a master at applicability. Why do so many people who come from all different religious backgrounds, come from all different parts of the world, speak a bunch of different languages. Why do they all love Tolkien? Why does Tolkien have such a big following? It lies in the applicability for the reader. Really, I've talked and I've talked about this on some of our other podcasts as well, some of our other discussions. Tolkien has these things called fundamental truths that I call fundamental truths within his writing that everybody, they, they apply to everybody. Another thing that, that I wanted to bring up before uh, I hand it back over to Catherine is she talked about fairy stories and she talked about, um, she talked about how uh, she kind of inf- implied that a sacred reading goes along with fairy stories. I couldn't agree more. And one of the questions that I have for the group and something that always baffles me is, and Tom Shippey's talked a little bit about this as well, Tolkien is not taken seriously in some academic circles because he writes quote unquote fairy stories. But we, we know that the Lord of the Rings is so much more than a fairy story, right? It's, it's, it has fairy story aspects to it, but it's so much more than a, than, than a, than a fairy tale. At, at its heart, one of its roots is grounded within fairy stories. Even when Tolkien was alive, he struggled with uh, getting people to take his writing seriously. I mean, there's a, I know a lot of stories with, his, with Alan and Unwin, with his publisher when he was alive, getting them to take uh, the Silmarillion seriously, even getting them to take the Lord of the Rings seriously. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that it was understood that Tolkien was writing a fairy tale. And the publisher automatically thought that, well, Tolkien's writing a fairy tale, we're probably not gonna sell a whole lot of these. A great example of that is when Tolkien was publishing The Lord of the Rings, when George Allen Oman was publishing The Lord of the Rings, the profit sharing agreement that, that Tolkien entered into it was such as to where he didn't see a whole lot of money at the first couple of years that the Lord of the Rings was published because they had to recoup all of the costs because the publisher, Alan Unwin, was convinced that this fairy tale that Tolkien wrote, he wasn't gonna, they weren't going to sell very many of these copies. And so they wanted to recoup their costs before, before they would give Tolkien any money because they were, they were convinced that they weren't going to just sell very many. Of course, we all know that they were wrong. But I think that at, at the heart of that is the people don't apply this sacred reading mentality to Tolkien stories enough. And that's where you get people not understanding the premise of the Lord of the Rings, seeing the Lord of the Rings as having a happy ending. Some of the, some of the misunderstandings that you see out there is people not applying this sacred reading to stories like the Lord of the Rings. I wanted to respond quickly to Chad B's comments on applicability and the idea that he proposed of, reading it from whatever place you are, whatever religion, whatever background. One of the things that I did not mention in my introduction is that in addition to being extremely Swedish, Finnish, Icelandic, etc., I am also a registered member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, which is broadly known by the group of people, the Nishnabe. And one of the legends about the Nishnabe is that it The creator had decided that the people of the world were too wicked and that he was going to destroy them all. But the eagle, who is an intercessor between the people and the creator, looked down from his heights and viewed that the people were still kindling fires in devotion to each other and in devotion to God. And he reported this to the creator. And so from that time, we are basically living on the witness of the eagle who determines whether or not there is justice and righteousness in the world. 
And I actually am working on a paper currently that is looking at this. This is for a publication in which we look at different characters in Tolkien who are not involved in Lord of the Rings and is specifically decided to talk about the eagles and their perspective of justice and how it is viewed in the Lord of the Rings. Also, I feel like for all of the religiosity and the deep Catholicism and deep Christianity and deep faith in many different things that we have in Lord of the Rings, there is a code of honor and a code of conduct and an almost a constitutionality to the interactions between the, all of the people in Middle Earth. There is a certain way in which they are expected to perform and expected to behave according to the conduct of good and the perception of who is a servant of the enemy and those who claim to oppose him. So that's an amazing correlation, I think, in my mind with the presentation of eagles in the legendarium. And, and you know, we could go on at length about that topic just on its own. Um, and it's another one of those, you know, if, small moments when you're just reading it that has such deeper meaning and um, such larger meaning. Um, and you can, you know, take it back to, you know, giving it a reading in the Havruta tradition, we could sit around as friends and, you know, discuss the Eagles. What if, what if they didn't come? What if more came? What if they came at a different time? It, it's a, it's a fascinating way to look at the text and I wanted to go back just a little bit to what Chad High was talking about regarding the academic poo-pooing of Tolkien and, and fairy stories in a larger context and kind of tie that back to sacred reading as I'm understanding it from our, our discussion today. And I'm going to blame the Victorians in a huge part for this and what we consider academic canon. and. I, I'm very frustrated with the lack of seriousness with which not just Tolkien, but many fantasy authors are taken. You know, Frank Herbert, for example, he, he writes a wonderful science fiction novel that is an incredible thesis on environmentalism and uh, destruction of resources. And it's just kind of, it's just a book. It's Dune. We'll just leave it alone. Again, you know, much like the Lord of the Rings, there is a rekindled interest in that book now with the film coming out later this year. Looking at, at fairy stories, uh, I think we, we can look at the professor's letters and his discussion of fairy as uh, becoming something diminutive and becoming something only for children. When the fairy stories you know, that the, the Grimm brothers collected, there are lessons there, not just for children, but for all of us to learn. And if we can take that approach to looking at them as literature that is worthwhile, not just in a very narrow field of study, because you could go to, you know, a college and take a course on fairy studies right, on, on, on myths or, or legends and, and fairy stories. And it, it may not be part of your core academic. It may be an elective that you take. That should be part of your core. You know, if you're studying literature, if you're studying religion, if you're studying mythology, fairy stories absolutely have a place 
And, you know, looking at going back to something we were talking about earlier, seeing God in those small moments, that's what fairy stories are, are really all about. It's bringing us back to the understanding of who we are as people, as who and who we are on this planet and how we move forward affects everybody else around us. So I, I think that there's there's absolutely you can apply sacred readings not only to fairy stories but to you know to, to Tolkien as a a part of that genre and really take some you know life lessons forward that can only serve to make us better people. One of the things that I've really enjoyed as an adult is actually something that started at my alma mater of Brigham Young University in particular. It was a symposium called Life, the Universe, and Everything. And it was entirely dedicated to the academic study and adult consideration of sci-fi and fantasy. And I believe that it is something that's relevant. At the beginning of Neil Gaiman's book, Coraline, we have a quote that's misattributed, but it says, fairy tales are important not because they tell us that dragons exist, but they say that dragons can be defeated. And I think that it is true of all fairy tales, so to speak, that they are the things that evolve with our understanding of our lives and our understanding of life's challenges. Adults more than anyone need the fairy stories because the children will receive it on one level, but the adults continue to tell themselves these stories. And I think that in this setting, fairy stories or fairy tales of any kind on an adult level is really introducing yourself into sacred imagination. Now, in order to just get this going, I would like to do a short practice with you to give you an example of how we do sacred readings. As I mentioned, there is one in particular that is called sacred imagination. And one of the things that happens in this particular practice is that, as I said, you can sit back in your chair, close your eyes if you feel comfortable or keep them open, but you listen to the passage and you consider what person you are in this scene. It doesn't have to be one of the characters mentioned. It can be a bystander. It can be a ethereal force. But who are you in this scene as you are witnessing this event? What speaks to you? What it reminds you of? And then if you have anything that you would like to say to the people in the scene, I invite you to share that. So the passage I have chosen is from The Hobbit, and it's in chapter 18, The Return Journey. And this will be familiar to many, many people, but it is the farewell of Thorn Oakenshield. Farewell, good thief, he said. I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until the world is renewed. Since I leave now all gold and silver and go where it is of little worth, I wish to pardon friendship from you, and I would take back my words and deeds at the gate. Bilbo knelt on one knee filled with sorrow. Farewell, king under the mountain, he said. This is a bitter adventure, if it must end so, and not a mountain of gold can amend it. Yet I am glad that I have shared in your perils. That has been more than any Baggins deserves. No, said Thorin. There is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West. Some courage and some wisdom, blended in measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sad or merry, I must leave it now. Farewell.
So I invite all of our panelists to consider the questions that I posed before. I will repeat them again just for reference. Who are you in this scene? What spoke to you personally? What does it remind you of? And if anything, what would you say to the people involved in this scene? I'll, I'll go first. I feel like in the, in the scene itself, I feel like I am... Well, I always feel like I'm Bilbo Baggins, so that, I guess that that doesn't that doesn't uh, change with 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 this particular scene. The scene it evokes forgiveness to me. That's that's sort of what I get from, and what I've always gotten from this particular scene where Bilbo is interacting with Thorin. I think a lot about how Thorin treated Bilbo just a couple of chapters before, and the response that uh, Bilbo is now getting from Thorin. And so just the, what it makes me feel is forgiveness. And the reason that I, I feel like Bilbo Baggins in this particular scene is uh, I like to listen to people. I like to listen to people talk. I mean, that's why I spend so much time with Chad is I like to listen to people talk. That's what Bilbo does in the scene. He's listening to Thorin speak his truth. He's listening to Thorin speak some of the last thoughts that he's going to have. And it's, it's, it is, it's deeply moving. This scene is deeply moving. I'm glad you chose it. So in this scene, I am not one of the main characters. I'm, I'm somebody else standing in the tent, maybe someone who has helped tend to Thorin's wounds. And I am at the side of the tent, uh, cleaning up, you know, rinsing out rags or, or something like that. And I almost feel like I'm trespassing on a very tender and intimate moment. But I am grateful to have heard these words and to know that that they are parting in friendship and that, and I take those words, if they're, if people valued food and comfort more than hoarded gold, those are words that I'm taking with me after I leave the tent and start rebuilding and, and go, go on with my life. I'm kind of in Laurie's boat here on all of these stories. I never really envision myself as a, as any of the characters themselves, but I always think of myself as like you said, the an ethereal being or something. I always picture myself as uh, almost as though I was told to go along with all these people so I can document it. That's what I, that's the way I think about. It. I'm just you know, someone said, Chad, follow these people around and remember everything. And in this case, right here, what what I was thinking of while you read it, and I've thought about it several ways in the past, but when you read it just now. What I was thinking of since I had my mind on how I was supposed to be thinking about this from a sacred reading type deal, I was thinking more along the lines as almost as though I was in the tent, like Laurie said, but I was thinking to myself, Thorin knows, everyone in the tent knows, Thorin, Bilbo, me, everyone, everyone knows. These are the last words that he is going to say, so you better make them count. And so he knows that he was kind of a mean person, but he knows that he wasn't the kindest person in the world. And he really had gone on a downward spiral, especially once he got to Edelbor. But he realizes towards the end here that he, he, uh, he was wrong about what, about what he was thinking with Bilbo. And, and now he has a chance. He sent them off, go find him. And Gandalf got him there quickly. And, you know, Thorin is dying and he has chosen his final words because this is the most important thing that he could possibly say 
on his deathbed. And he's saying it to the most important person that was in his crew throughout this quest. I think we're on a little bit of a common theme here because I too am someone who is not in the chapter in terms of direct reference. For me, Tolkien often, he is obviously not allegorical, but he seems very similar to the parables. And in this case, it reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son, which is in the book of Luke in the New Testament for those who read such things. And one of the things that it talks about in a similar downward spiral is that the son who had squandered his inheritance, who had been completely out of character and who had dishonored his legacy and dishonored his family and his heritage, he came to himself. For me, I am one of the people who came to this tent hoping to help and mend fences with the people who were just originally my enemy in this battle and then became my compatriots. And so for me, it's a privilege to hear these words of Thorin once he has come to himself and once I am able to see that he is not the person that I thought he was. It reminds me of Helder in the Fellowship of the Ring, where he looks into the eyes of an enemy and finds understanding. And so I feel like this final passage is really speaking to us all that we have this idea that we're able to, at any point in our fall, be restored to our true self. And I think that is a, one of the things that will carry us forward into the Lord of the Rings, especially with the heritage that Bipumbo gives to Frodo and what Frodo accomplishes in the end. At the end of every Secret Fellowship podcast episode, we invite people to make exhortations to the characters or to ourselves. And so in that spirit, I would like to, after thanking you all for this wonderful discussion, exhort all of us to remember that we are able to come to ourselves and to value food and song and merriment above other things. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Our goal is to create a podcast where the voices of Tolkien fans worldwide can be heard, and that means we want to hear from you, and so do all of our listeners. If you want to get on the podcast, you can go to our website at texastolkien.com. Click on the link that says Getting on the Podcast and fill out the simple form with your name, contact info, and topic that you would like to discuss. And I promise we'll make room for you. You can also interact with us on our Facebook page, at Texas Tolkien Talk Podcast, where you can see the latest announcements and happenings. If you want to get in touch, you can drop us a line at texastolkientalk at gmail.com. All your thoughts and questions are welcome. Until next time, folks. Namadier.